Corinthians 5 from verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live may no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. For, God, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. All right, good afternoon. Thanks to everyone tuning in from home. And thanks to everyone who's actually here in the building. It's been so good the past few weeks to be able to actually speak to real people rather than just throwing it out there down a camera lens and hoping that it's not a giant prank and that there are actually people listening in. Um, But um, I don't know if you were with us last week for the first week on our series uh, where we looked at how awe overcomes apathy, that to know the true and living God, to have a real encounter with God is an awe-inspiring thing. Um, And the challenge that I left everyone with was to take God's word into God's world and see if he doesn't use it to increase your awe of him. And so naturally, we took up the challenge as a family. And so yesterday, we went up, we went up to the Blue Mountains together. And my, my kids were so hyped about it that I was a little worried. Because when a, when a child hears Blue Mountains, they're thinking like, now, if that sounds magical. And so they're, like, they're probably thinking like, yeah, we might not, but we, we may see a dragon or something like that, and, or a wizard or something like that. Which if you know the Blue Mountains, you do have a chance of seeing a wizard. But they're a lot, they're a lot creepier than you would think. Uh, but anyway, shout out to all the Blue Mountains people tuning in. Um, we went up there and it was, it was, I have to say, pretty incredible. We actually went out on that cable car that heads out over sort of near Katoomba Falls. And the, you're, you're like 300 meters up and you're standing on a glass floor. And which I, I mentioned last week, not knowing that there was going to be a glass floor. And you do get that sense. Your legs go a little bit weak. You get that sense of fear mixed with wonder. When you look out over a lookout, Yep, as you do. That's why they call them that. But when you do that, I don't know if anyone else has that feeling, but you, you feel like you almost want to jump out into it, not because mental health-wise I'm very okay, everyone, but you have that sense of just wanting to be a part of the, the, just the grandeur of what's going on. And um, it was an incredible kind of thing to just behold God's creation in all its magnitude and to know that this is a small little picture a small way of experiencing what it's like and what it will be like to stand in the very presence of God. The other thing that struck me while we were there was just how unstruck you can be in an environment like that. There were so many people that went past us and there were, there were couples that looked very much like they were either had just had a fight where both of them had gone quiet or this was one of their idea but not the other or there was like, there's a group of teenagers coming through who are like, I don't know what to do with our life. Let's just go to the mountains. Is that a thing? And we're just there on their phones. There were other people who, if they were enjoying it, had certainly forgot to tell their face. It just, it looked like there were people who were almost miserable right next to this incredible scenery. 
And it, it just reminded me of the human capacity to be underwhelmed by what should be absolutely awe-inspiring. But either way, if you didn't last week, I encourage you to take up the challenge this week and to see if you take God's Word into His world, whether or not He shows you a glimpse of His glory and wonder. But this week, we're looking at the idea of overcoming frustration, particularly with work, with purpose, with a purpose and meaning for life. And so if you're here or listening in and you're feeling underwhelmed by your work at the moment, then this message really is for you. And if you're feeling very much overwhelmed by work at the moment, then I really believe that this message is for you as we look at the person of Jesus and how he transforms not just our work life, but all of life around that. And so if, even if you, look, you wouldn't consider yourself a spiritual person or religious especially, but you are someone who wants to think about the big questions of life, I really think what Jesus has to say in this text today is for you. And so I'm going to pray that, he, that God would do a massive work in our lives this afternoon. As we listen in from home, as we're here in the building, that we would hear God's word and be moved by it. Let's, let's pray. Father, we, just, we praise you that you are far beyond our imagining, that you are a God who is glorious and powerful, that you rule over all things, and yet you care about individual lives like our own. We thank you that you have not left us to guess what life is about, but you have spoken to us through your word, the Bible, so that we might understand who we are, and most importantly, who you are, and who you call us to be. And Father, we pray that you would open our eyes to see you and to see you in your word this afternoon and all for the glory of your name. Amen. Well, last week I started, I started with a strange kind of story from the mid-1800s. I thought to top that I'd go all the way back to ancient mythology. I don't know how I'm going to top that next week, maybe with like something from the future. or something. I don't know how you do that. But anyway, but this week I wanted to share with you to kick off to just get us thinking about work and about connecting work to meaning in life, about the, the ancient Greek mythology of Sisyphus. If you know the story, you'll know that Sisyphus was a, a Greek king, but he was a bit of a cheeky lad. He was, he was known for being a bit deceptive and a bit of an annoying one. But the thing that was probably probably top of his accomplishments, was that he managed to cheat death twice. So that was, that was kind of what he had bragging rights over. Now, he managed to do this, and the gods obviously got very annoyed about the fact that he should be dead, but he got out of it twice. So Zeus decided to take charge of the situation, and he gave him a punishment that he thought would be fittingly cheeky. The idea was that Sisyphus would have to push this massive boulder up an incredibly steep hill. So it would take all of his might and ingenuity to get this boulder to the top. And once it was up and over, his task was finished. But the trick was, every time it got to the top, it would just roll back down to the bottom. And so Sisyphus was cursed for eternity to meaningless, straining, difficult work that had no point. Time after time, he would push this rock up, and no matter, no matter how much of his might or genius or cleverness he used, no matter what he did, the result was always the same. The boulder would roll back down, and he'd have to push it back up again, and again, and again, and again. If there was ever a metaphor for the frustration of modern work, it would be Sisyphus, wouldn't it? The sense of work being extremely difficult, hard, taking up the best of your time and youth and resources, 
but really feeling like, what has it accomplished? With this in mind, a guy called David Graeber, an anthropologist, wrote a controversial little article in 2015 that caused a bit of a stir, and it was called Useless Jobs. If you Google useless jobs, you won't find it. It's a little less PG than that, but we're keeping it PG because we've got online viewing and all that sort of thing. But he, um, he wrote this article called Useless Jobs, and he, his, I guess, main thesis was that there is, an, in, there is a, an ever-increasing number of jobs that just should not exist. They don't in any way contribute to human thriving. And don't mishear it. He's not talking about jobs that are considered menial or difficult. He's saying jobs that in, involve you know, cleaning or laboring or you know, entire workforces like that, he says if they disappeared overnight, their impact would be instant. If those people quit their jobs all at once, the impact on society would be massive. Now, he's talking about a whole bunch of things in corporate law and middle management. Jobs, he says, are entire industries that if they disappeared overnight, no one would even notice. He says that there are many people who are working jobs that they really feel should not even exist, and they know it. He says this, How can we even begin to speak about the dignity of labor when secretly one believes that one's job should not even exist? Many people are spending the best of their time, youth, and energy pouring into something where they actually, if they stop and think about it, realize that this job doesn't mean anything, it doesn't contribute to anything. Even more so in his book, Lost Connections, Johan Hari writes that only 13% of people would say that they're engaged in their job. That is, they actually care about it and it's meaningful work. It's say another 63% are not engaged, meaning that they're basically sleepwalking. And then there's 24% who are actively disengaged, meaning that they're the people at work who are actively undermining the purpose of the, the organization that they're a part of just by being there. It's a grim picture of work. We're living in a modern Sisyphus nightmare. But I would put to you that if you understand who Jesus is, and if you understand the gospel, then you can connect the why of life to work. That, that meaningless sets in when it comes to work, when, we are when our work is disconnected from the why of our life. Even just, just go with me on a thought experiment for a moment here. What impact do you think it would have if the first question on every job application you ever had to fill out was, why do I exist? Now, I realize, like, yeah, probably some people would go into the fetal position and have an existential crisis or whatever. And I'm sure, I'm sure as a culture, we'd actually end up working out a thoughtless answer that was kind of the equivalent of like when they say, what's your weakness? And you say, I'm a perfectionist. You know, like we'd have some kind of pat answer eventually. But let's imagine for this thought experiment that everyone took it seriously. That the first question on your job application was, why do I exist? How many people would actually stop filling out the, resi the, the application right there? As they realize what the purpose of their life is, would just go, this job in no way serves that end. How many others would say, how could I choose a career or a job when I don't even know what life is actually about? How many companies would be able to say, oh, this is a clear and obvious mismatch between what you believe about life and the work that you're going to spend most of your life doing? See, I think we need to connect the why of life to our work in order to have meaningful work. We have to. Otherwise, we're going to experience the curse of Sisyphus. Life is so busy that we just get on with the what. We do jobs. We carry out our lives without ever stopping to ask the serious moral and philosophical questions like, why am I here? What am I doing here? 
And I'll put to you that Jesus answers this question in such a profound way that it can not only make difficult work meaningful, but it could actually change the whole way that you see your workplace and work entirely. But to get there, we need to understand why it is that we end up disconnecting the why of life from work when it seems like it's obvious that they should go together. And one of the, one of the first ways we misunderstand work is that we see work as just in the way of life. This was before I knew Jesus, before I followed Jesus, the, it was definitely the case that I believed that work was in the way of the life that I wanted to live. I remember choosing my career while I was skateboarding. I can still remember where I was and what I was, where I was thinking about it. And I remember as I was skating, thinking this is a great sesh, and then thinking, gosh, I've got to get a job one day. What job would give me the most time to skate? I thought, teaching. PE teaching was probably the closest as well because there's a bit of sport involved and that sort of thing. But I thought 12 weeks annual leave at a minimum, private school maybe a bit more. You can finish maybe on three. Didn't know a lot about teaching at that stage. I was like, that is the job that's going to maximize things. And the reason for that was that I believe that the why of life was to have maximum freedoms and fun and minimum responsibilities. I was wise enough at 17 to know that there's only a window of about four years between 18 and 22 when you can have maximum freedoms and minimum responsibilities. And after that, you need to get some kind of job, otherwise it starts to trim back on your freedoms. And so life is kind of a balancing act. But ultimately, I saw work as a necessary evil. This is something that I have to do, but if I didn't have to, if I could find a way around it, I would. But it was a compromise. And the problem with this view of work, and I reckon lots of people have it, I don't think it was just me, The problem with this view is it's always going to lead to some kind of resentment. Work, where you're going to spend a large portion of your life, is going to feel like something that you have to do, something that is in the way of the life that you could be living. And it leads to resentment about work, but sometimes it leads to resentment about the people in your life who you should be cherishing the most. I wouldn't have to work this job if my partner just had a decent job. I wouldn't have to work this job if kids weren't so expensive. I wouldn't have to work this job if you can fill in the blanks. It often leads to a deep sense of resentment. And like work is just in the way of life. And it's a zero-sum game and you're always losing or winning depending on how much work you are or aren't doing. It's not a great way to view work. The why of life is too little to encompass all of life, including work. But there is a flip side. People can sometimes go the other way and sometimes go from one view to the other because the next one is to view work as life itself. That is when I so pour into work that it actually becomes basically my entire life and identity. Work, rather than being too little a part of my life, becomes too big and and spans over everything. If you've seen the movie The Founder, it's it's a movie about the founder, you can watch it for yourself, of McDonald's. His name was Ray Kroc, and he was a relentlessly focused man. He initially had a bunch of sales jobs. They weren't particularly successful, but he was someone who was committed to keeping on going until he was successful at something. And when he found this McDonald's thing, he thought, this is it. I'm going to build my empire. But what you notice over the movie is that work becomes everything about life. In fact, there's one really telling moment And I don't know how true it was to actual life details, but there's a telling moment where the character is trying to expand the the McDonald's franchises and they're getting their friends to buy the business and to set it up and they're doing a terrible job at it. 
And he says to his wife, I think we need new friends. As in, we need the kind of friends that can help our business. Not only that, when he realizes that someone else's wife would be more into building his franchises than his own wife, he upgrades as well and leaves his wife and joins another wife. And his life is built so completely around work that people become a means to an end. They're either there to help him succeed or to get in his way. When When everything becomes about work, we end up using people. When everything becomes about work, our identity gets entirely wrapped up in our work. It's not just that I'm a good lawyer or a good doctor or a good worker. Actually, that's what makes me a good person. I'm successful. I'm good. It's my reason to look down on people who don't work hard or don't make anything of their lives. It also makes us incredibly insecure. When someone criticizes the work I'm doing, they're not just criticizing my work, they're criticizing me at a fundamental level. It makes us fragile. Now, when work is just with all of life, things get way out of balance very quickly. What we need is a why about life that is big enough to put work in its place, but also to give it meaning. And so here's where we come to Jesus and the story of one of his followers, Paul. The passage that, that Jacob read out just before was from one of Paul's letters to a church in a place in Greece called Corinth. And Paul was a person who he hated Jesus and he hated Jesus' followers. He'd, he made it his life's work to imprison, to torture, to mistreat, to intimidate Christians. But one day he met Jesus and it so rocked him that it, it entirely flipped his world upside down. And in trying to explain what it was like to meet Jesus, to know Jesus personally, Paul writes this little section here to explain what it was like for him to encounter the living God. He says this, For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one died for all and therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live may no longer live for themselves but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on therefore we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore if anyone is in Christ he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is Paul explaining what it was like to meet Jesus and how radically it changed the motivation for his life, the why of his life, his reason to exist. Paul says that that Jesus literally loved him to death. Jesus loved his enemy, someone who hated him and his people, enough to actually die for him, and it completely rocked Paul's world. I, wonder, I was trying to think about this this week. Try and think about this for yourself. What is the kindest, most self-sacrificing act that anyone has ever done for you? What is the kindest most self-sacrificing, self-sacrificial, however you say it, act that someone has ever 
done for you? Was it an enormous amount of money that they laid out at personal sacrifice for you or your career or your education? Was it, was it your, your mother who actually risked, in many ways, life to bring you into the world? It was an incredibly painful thing. That's an incredible sacrifice to bring about life. Was it someone else, a close friend, who did something incredibly kind and self-sacrificial for you? Or maybe do you find it hard to recall anything particularly significant? Paul says that Jesus literally died for him. And it rocked him completely. Because it wasn't a friend doing a very kind and self-sacrificing thing for him. It was someone that he was an enemy of. He considered Jesus his enemy. He killed people who followed Jesus. And yet Jesus had died for him in his place. How would you feel if someone you hated actually laid down their life for you? Would it, would it almost make you mad that you couldn't still be mad at them? How would it impact you? Well, Paul says when the God of the universe dies for you and pays the blood price for your sin, it rocks your world completely. So now he says, the love of Christ controls me. Now that I've understand how much Jesus has loved me, it, it just controls everything I do. It is the central motivating force of my entire life. I exist now for him. I live no longer for myself, but for him who for my sake died. He says in this, he's become a complete new person. When you come to know the love of Jesus for you, it's not like a small lifestyle change or it's not like an interesting experience that you had. Paul says you literally become a new creation, like a new world has come into being. To know Jesus' love is so transformative that your whole life now has a new orientation and a new orbit. You are a new world. The old has passed away and the new has come. And because of this, he says, I no longer exist for myself, but for him who for my sake died and was raised. I live for Jesus now. If Paul were to sum up the why of life, he's saying, I exist to show people the love of Christ by my words and my works. That's why I exist. That's the whole point I'm here. That's the whole reason I'm here. My work is for that end. My life, my friendships, everything is just to show the love of Christ through my words and my works. That's why I exist. And if we understand this, if you are here and a follower of Jesus, this transforms completely how you approach work. For a start, it redeems what we might call ordinary work. Let's say your job is you're like, Wait, look, my job is a nothing job. I'm just a, I'm just a shelf stacker. That's all I do. Is just, I just put up consumer products so they're easier to consume. It's a nothing job. Well, it's food that's actually providing for people. And you have an opportunity every day to love like Christ did by serving the people around you. It's not just a mere job. Not only that, but if you don't have your dream job, it's not like you've lost your life purpose. If your life purpose is to show the love of Christ through your words and your works. Sure, the job you have at the moment may not be the one that you would love to have, but you still have an opportunity every day to show the, love of, the life-changing love of Jesus in many and, and every circumstance. That redeems work that can feel pretty ordinary at the time. But there's another thing it does. Notice what he said there. It transforms how you look at other people. He says, once you know the love of Jesus, he says, we no longer look at people according to the flesh. That is, according to outward appearances. If you believe that work is in the way of life, 
you will see people in your workspace in two ways. There are annoying people or there are interesting people. Try and maximize your time with this group and minimize your time with this group. Or if you believe that work is life, you will see people according to who can advance your career and who will hinder your career. But Paul says when you understand the love of Christ and you know that that is the why for life, you look at people as image bearers of God who need to know the love of Christ. That you've been put in your workplace as an ambassador for Jesus to show the love of Christ through your words and your works. And it changes the way you relate to people. Every workplace, as far as I know, every workplace has a workplace pest. When I was, when I was we, had, we were minding someone else's kids and we were walking past a work site and I saw what was probably a young apprentice and he had a bottle of water and he was coming up quietly behind one of his co-workers who was loading stuff in the back of the truck. And I was stressed because I knew what he was about to do. He was going to pour it on this guy and inevitably there was going to be some colourful language and I was going to have to work out what to do with the kids. And of course there was and they had lots of questions about the words that they heard that day. But as I was sort of managing to try and put earmuffs on all the kids as we were sort of you know, hurrying them by this situation, I could see from the dynamic that this guy was the workplace pest. This was not the first time that this had happened. It probably wasn't going to be the last time. He's probably the guy, he's the boss's nephew or something, so he can't get fired. He's just around all the time. I could just see from how everyone related to him, this is the guy that everyone's like, ah, oh, why do I have to work with him today? Why would you put him in the truck with me? But every workplace has them. If you're in a really high, like kind of a, a high-capacity workplace, it's the person who always stops off at your desk to have a 20-minute chat. They seem to have so much time because they don't have that much work to do and they kill you. In other workplaces, it's the person who's always bragging or subtly trying to put themselves up or other people down. In other workplaces, it's the workplace gossip. Every workplace has a, a workplace pest. And if your workplace doesn't, be careful because <laughs> it may be you. Just, just ask some loving friends to ask you how your workplace behaviors are affecting them. But if the gospel is true and Jesus loved even his enemies, then it means that person at work deserves love too. And then if Christ could love you, then you can love them. And it transforms the way you see the people around you. There's no longer interesting people and uninteresting people. There's no longer people who help my career and those who hinder it. There are people made in the image of God who need to know the life-transforming love of Jesus. Why I exist is to show people the love of Christ through my words and my works. And once we understand this, it transforms how we approach life even more broadly. Understanding this might cause you to work more because you realize then I'll have, there, are, there is more money that I'll be able to give away to people who will never be able to thank me, but I know that they will experience something of the love of Christ as their needs are met, as misery is alleviated. Maybe it will cause you to work less, to forego your career advancement, because there are people that God has made you responsible to love, and you want to love and invest in them. Maybe it will make you quit your job. Maybe as you think about the why of life, and you think, I'm here to show the love of Christ through my words and my works, and you think about your workplace and your organization and what it accomplishes, you might realize that, you know what? The place I work for doesn't mirror the love of Christ by laying down our life for the needs of others. Actually, it's exploiting people, and it's taking money from people, and it's harming people, and I can't be a part of that anymore. 
Maybe it will cause you to tweak your job, to work out how it is that your organization might be able to start moving funds away from the organization to help people and help people even more so. Whatever it is, to stand back and to consider that I exist because of the love of Christ, to show people the love of Christ through my words and my works, will transform how we work completely. So I've got a challenge for you then this afternoon. If you're here and you are not sure about where you stand with Jesus or whatever it is, can I put the challenge to you? If you're tuning in online, if you're listening to this or, or here with us, if you cannot succinctly say why it is that you exist, you really should. If you consider yourself not a religious person, a secular person, whatever it is, to have integrity in life, we need to know why it is that we are here. And the claims of Christ are worth investigating. I obviously am convinced of that. But even if you're not, everyone needs to be able to succinctly say why it is that I am here on this planet. Why do I exist? Otherwise, life is going to be a series of inherited behaviors. We're just going to do what the people around us do. And at some point, we'll have to ask the question, what am I doing? Why not now? That's my challenge to you if you're not sure about where you stand with Jesus. And if you're someone who follows Jesus, here is a very simple, succinct, under two-minute challenge to try for just, I'm going to say just five days this week, the working week, and just to see, see what impact this has. I want you to try reading 2 Corinthians 14 to 21, the passage that we looked at today, before your workday, in the middle of the workday, wherever it is, but to read that passage... And then to say, I exist to show people the love of Christ through my words and my works. And then pray briefly. Keep it under 120 seconds. That's the only parameter. And then see if that doesn't transform the way you begin to look at your work and the people that you work with. So often, we just work and work and work, and we forget to step back and ask the question of, why am I doing this? Why am I here? And what am I called to be? Take two minutes a day for five days and see if that doesn't transform the way you approach work. I'm going to pray that God would open our hearts and minds to see the glory of His vision for how we are to live our lives and particularly our working lives. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that You give us purpose and meaning. That You are the God who entered into human history, entered into our story, and sent Christ as a demonstration, a visible demonstration of your love for us who had sinned against you and walked away from you. Father, we thank you that Jesus loved us with an everlasting love, that you have loved us, and that you have redeemed us. And Father, we pray that as we work, that it would be for your glory. That we would look for opportunities to share the love of Christ with what we say and with what we do so that we might speak of the most unspeakably good love in the world, a love that is otherworldly, a love that is utterly life-transforming. And Father, we pray that we would do this not for our sake, but for your glory and our joy in you. Amen.